It's my pleasure to introduce to you Ann Davis, our next, speech, our next speaker. She's a senior director for the State Advocacy and Outreach for the American Academy of Physician Assistants, a position that she, which she has held since 1994. In this role, Ann researches and summarizes state laws for physician assistants, drafts legislation to improve state laws, and educates state and national groups on utilization and regulation of physician assistants. Anne is a graduate of the University of Colorado Physician Assistant Program, and prior to joining the Academy staff, she practiced as a physician assistant in pediatrics in, and has taught at the Colorado Physician Assistant Program. Please welcome Anne. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. I think I was here, um, I don't know, a few years back to talk to the SDPA and it's uh, delightful to uh, be invited back. I'm always glad to come to Texas. Texas does so many things right, so thank you for um, letting me be in, in this great state. The Gaylord really belongs in Texas, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a Texas-sized kind of place, no doubt about it. So uh, the things left out of my bio, one of them is that uh, working with state legislators, I found that the perfect preparation has been my 16 years in outpatient pediatrics because some of the behavior is exactly the same, but the waiting room is bigger at the Capitol. This is the thing I can tell you. The other thing that people don't, I was thinking about, what is my job? Sometimes people say, well, what do you do? Well, I think my biggest job is to worry, and that is partly to worry about the things we decide now that are gonna have consequences for us tomorrow and the day after that and in a decade. You know, nobody got up one morning and said, let's create MRSA. Let's come up with a really awful bug that's gonna be hard to treat, that people um, who have other problems, you know, like HIV and diabetes and low socioeconomic status are gonna have a hard time with. It didn't, it didn't start that way. It started by, you know, a little over-prescribing, the bugs got smart, we got better, and, and we don't wanna be ending up with MRSA because we didn't think about it right today. Same thing with the guy that did the uh, fertility treatment of the Octomom. You know, he didn't get up one day and say, you know, I think that what I would really want to do is make a really crummy ethical decision that would lead to me losing my license. It didn't start that way. It started by, well, the science could do this. We don't really know. We'll kind of start out that direction. And right now, I believe the world is our oyster. The time for PAs really is now. So it's important that we kind of make decisions together that get us to where we want to go. Independent of what you think about healthcare reform, the fact is things are changing, like it or don't. If we're not at the table, we'll be at the on the menu. And it's up to us to make sure that we are making good decisions for the profession, both as a group and individually, that get us to where it is we want to be a decade from now. So that's kind of where we're going. And here's how we're going to get there, if I can find the change. Here we go. The other thing I'm going to tell you is that I'm going to talk for a while, but I'm a whole lot more interested in what you have to say than I am interested in what I have to say. So I'm hoping that you have things that you wanted to ask about or questions or issues. The hard stuff is fine. It is my favorite. So if you're thinking about something that you think might be controversial or, you know, we'll start a fist fight, I guess there's a lot of going on in the hotel today. That'd be fine, too. Um, so uh, bring it on is what I'd say. So here's the things we're gonna run through. The six key elements of a modern PA practice act, that's gonna be really quick. And then new technologies and how they create state law challenges. And if you haven't come up against one of these, you're just not paying attention. These are out there every day, all the time. Why dermatology is particularly at risk, and when I say at risk, I mean really truly at risk for um, state law challenges. 
and how to assure that your individual decisions lead to safe and legal patient care. My other important thing in my bona fides is that I know Joe Renroe really well for a long time. So, um, and Joe thinks that I have some good ideas, so you should listen to me. All right. So this is kind of how things start out. You know, when Joe and I were newly minted PAs, no one cared uh, what we were doing. We weren't particularly regulated. If they were there to help, and you said, you know, you were there to assist the physician, and, and uh, you know, you could take that x-ray, you could do that procedure, because we were just all kind of below the radar. Um, that's, that's over. Now there are a bunch of us, 75,000 across the country. And so then people thought, well, we should kind of come up with lists of things that PAs could do. You can't just do everything the doctor says. There should be a list. Those of you who practice in Alabama, Maryland, uh, Oregon, you're still living with that pestilence. But most people, for most folks, the list is gone now. And laws have gone to the more modern thing, which is they allow physicians to delegate tasks within the, the doctor's scope of practice for which the PA is trained. And of course, this is much better because you can't come up with a list of everything that PAs might do. And if you made a list today, it would be wrong tomorrow. You know, there's, there's Norplant, then there's not. There's this procedure, then there's not. This is standard of care, then it's not. Who would want a list? That doesn't really protect the public. And those of you in those states where that still is a problem, we'll get there, you know, we're working on it. Things are better now in Maryland than they were six months ago. So um, things are moving in the right direction. So what's changed? You know, obviously, we've been here for a while. This isn't the new, the new experiment. PAs are a recognized member of the healthcare team. And regulators are kind of catching on. You know, a lot of times you'll talk to a state legislator who'll say, yeah, don't bother telling me, you know, teach, what we said, our joke is, don't bother teaching me how to spell PA. Um, you know, at home I'm taken care of by a PA or my Kids were just seen in the emergency department a week ago by a PA, or my regular provider is a PA, so that's great. Also, there's standardization. We have less cottage industry of trying to decide how PAs should be regulated. Um, it used to be that every state would kind of sit around and you know, put on their little thinking caps and say, well, we think that I'd go like this for PAs. Well, now there's some standards. Um, there's uh, policies adopted by places like the Federation of State Medical Boards and other places that kind of say this is, the, this is how PAs ought to be regulated. So we have some standardization. And then Robert was giving me a hard time, because it's what he lives for, about um, this last thing, which is removal of barriers to practice that serve no public protection role. All of us in practice deal with these. I mean, the doctor has to stop and sign your chart please. You know, if you've practiced together for 30 years, what is the point? There's some charts that I absolutely want co-signed, uh, and there's some charts that the doctor wants to co-sign. And your facility may say something. That's fine, too. You know, the kid that's vomiting that has a VP shunt, but I know it's the flu, I'm going to get the doctor to sign that chart, you know, uh, if I'm going to send that kid home. So things that are a little bit out there, but you're very confident, you've consulted, of course. But those decisions should be made at the clinical level, right? Not in state law. Those of you that are having to have all your charts co-signed or a certain percentage, percentage is impossible because who knows what the denominator is? You know, 5% of what? How many patients did you see that month? It's, it's tough. So regulators are getting to the idea where we should take out those things that don't protect the public. We should take out the things that just are slow you down without having any benefit. And that's good. 
So why are health professionals regulated? And why don't we do this on the federal level? You know, you'd think that this would be something like if your license is a PA, you know, like you drive. You get a driver's license wherever you live, and then you practice any place. But health professional regulation has been a state's rights issue, and I don't think that's going to change. Certainly not in my lifetime, and I'm a young woman with good health habits. So we don't anticipate that this is going to happen you know, anytime soon. So state law is what we're going to have to deal with. So the goals of regulation are to keep the public safe. You don't want somebody showing up with you know, Joe's brain surgery in their garage. You want to have people have to have a license to do what they're able to do. But you also want folks to be able to do that efficiently and effectively without unnecessary barriers. So what are the best practices for PAs? These three things, adopting the six key elements. And although you practice in dermatology, you have a state license. So the, the parameters of that state license are going to matter to you even if what you do is pretty specific or pretty specialized. And then adding PAs to other re relevant laws, like laser laws, laws that govern particular medications. And then making sure that licensure and supervision agreements meet access goals. OK, that's a lot of words. But here's what it means. I'm licensed in, oops, sorry, I'm licensed in California. If this, this evening I go home and somebody from my church calls and says, we're going to do a foot clinic for our homeless people tomorrow night. Can you come help? We've got a doctor from the health department that's going to supervise. All it takes in California is for me to agree to do that, to go to location. The doctor and I fill out a delegation of services agreement, which we keep on file at the setting, and we're good to go. No additional paperwork has to be filed with the state. No money changes hands. As long as we're both licensees and we comply with the law, it's just like that. There are seven states now that have that kind of system, but the majority do not. And we need to move to that kind of uh, you know, lean, clean diagnostic machine so that you're able to do what needs to be done without additional steps that just don't mean anything to anybody. They're just sort of a historical barrier. So we want to move that direction. The six key elements. This is, you know, this is good. Those of you in clinical practice will be able to, if I, if I asked you to, you know, not look at the screen and look down at your piece of paper and say, what are the things that make practice great? You would come up with these. This is not rocket science. I got to tell you a thing about rocket science. So, um, one of my personal heroes is Bobby Moody, who's the director of the Medicaid program in Mississippi. And Bobby Moody was once said, was quoted to say, Medicaid is not rocket science. It's a whole lot more complicated and a bunch more expensive. And he's about right, I think. OK, so the kids' key elements. And again, you know these. The first is that PAs ought to be licensed. The second is the doctor ought to be able to delegate all schedules of drugs. The third is that the scope should be determined at the practice. The fourth is that you ought to have adaptable supervision requirements. No ratio. The number of PAs a doctor supervise ought to be determined at the practice. If I'm in dissecting aortic aneurysm clinic, probably it should be one doctor and one PA, right? Um, but if you're doing well-child clinic, family planning, a lot of derm, general derm kind of things, it, it could be multiple. PAs that the physician is supervising. And then again, chart co-signature should be determined at the practice. So why licensure? Well, the person that cuts your hair is probably licensed, right? So if you're in one of those four states that doesn't use licensure yet, anybody here from New York? You registered people? Exactly. What's up with that? You know, you ought to be licensed. It's, what, it's the standardized term. Uh, and, and now 46 states use licensure. That's a regulatory term. And the, re the reason to do that is there's a whole bunch of other law that talks about licensed health professionals. For example, during Katrina, 
Governor uh, Babineau Blanco said that any licensed health professional should come on to the state to help out. Um, but if you're registered, does that mean you? Um, it, it should be clear. And, okay, so, and also it's, it's easily recognized by consumers. Prescriptive authority, again, there's time that only a Schedule II will do, right? Uh, Kidney Stone, East Texas, you know, Schedule II. Uh, so there shouldn't be a limitation on that. Scope of practice should be determined by the supervising physician and any relative, relevant facility policy because things change and you want to be able to customize your team as practice changes, population changes, the providers change. Again, pretty intuitively obvious to practicing PAs. Let me say too that PAs are the only health professional that derives their scope of practice entirely by delegation from a supervising physician and we are fine with that. It's the physician PA team and within that continuum, people decide what's best done by the doctor what's best done by the PA, and things that should be done by the doctor shouldn't be done by the PA, and things that should be done by the PA shouldn't be done by the doctor, right? I mean, if you want to be very efficient, it should happen that way. And those of you in general derm have to be very efficient. There's, there's problems there. As you well know, in my county, which is pretty big, there is not one dermatologist that will take a child covered by Medicaid, not one. So there's an access problem there of some sort. And, and so creating efficiencies through the use of PAs is a good idea. Adaptable supervision requirements. Anybody here live in uh, Missouri, Oklahoma, Ohio? Right. So what's up with the idea that a doctor has to be within 30 miles? I mean, that's, that's archaic. That should go away. A few states have ideas that the doctor should be in the practice every fill in blank, you know, number of days, every five days. Many of you practice with a physician on site, which is fine. But again, the adaptability factor is what you're looking for. Uh, ratios we talked about a minute ago. And chart co-signature too. Again, it's not saying there shouldn't be limits here, but the limits should be determined at the practice, not in the law. So here's our, my six key map. Uh, Texas, I'm sorry, we should have given you two. I, I goofed on the, the colors. But if you look at here, this is like green is really good and red is not so hot. But this was back in uh, 2009, but things change. And look at how busy people have been. Okay, so that's December 31st, 2009. All of the states in blue made an improvement in one of the six key elements. In, since May 2009. So in the last 18 months, every blue state, things got better in terms of one of the six key elements. That's huge. And now there's less red, uh, more green, and even more. This is from June. And there you see that two states have all of the six key elements, and many more have added additional key elements, which is great. Things go that direction. No PA law has gone backwards, with the exception of those dermatology legislation in Florida about five years ago. Any Floridians here? Right, so you know. And then as you guys know, there are a bunch of laws outside the PA Practice Act that make a big difference. And for you, there are gonna be laws that govern things like lasers and um, injectables. Uh, who can practice in, I'm, I'm gonna say this, Nicely, medical spas, I don't know what that is exactly, and I'm sure many of you do, but it's, um, it's a, an area of a lot of contention. 
And there have been a lot of questions about it. The law says the physician may delegate, but there's another law that specifically regulates lasers. How do those things intersect? Anybody here practice in Iowa? Yeah, so just the 27th of October, there was a lovely battle won there where there had been a bunch of new regulations proposed about who could supervise in a medical spa. If a physician had to be the supervisor in a medical spa, it was determined that they did. And then there were some regulations written that said, and the physician must supervise in this manner, including being on site every four, uh, four hours a week. Well, you know, for PAs, that doesn't make any sense. PAs always practice with physician supervision. There's no reason to put another overlay in a unique setting. Just as if we would say, you know, in a rural health clinic or in Planned Parenthood or wherever, uh, the physician has to have another whole set of supervisory um, uh, requirements. So for a year, uh, we, you know, talked to the medical board in Iowa and said, you know, fine with supervision, we're good, we live there, nobody wants to change that, but these shouldn't require, this, this shouldn't apply to physician PA teams because the doctors and the PA are going to practice on the continuum you are intending to create anyway. It's already in the PA law. You could discipline those guys for just being bad actors from disobeying the PA law or the Medical Practice Act. And lo and behold, I just read it this morning, we won. Uh, the regulations say, oh yeah, well, they don't say this, but at the end it says, um, I was going to say, oh yeah, King's Exxon's PAs, but no regulations say that. But what it says is that this is not to supersede or create new um, requirements for physicians practicing under this code section uh, who work with PAs practicing under this code section. And that's what we want, because a lot of time we get kind of grouped in with folks that are not living in the physician PA continuum of any stripe, you know, physical therapists, advanced practice nurses, I'm sure there's some of you here, and that's fine. But we want people to see PAs uniquely, because there's some things about how we're regulated and how we practice that are just different from everybody else. So that was a, that was a cool thing. So here we go. Lasers, fillers, off-label use in outpatient surgery. Has anyone in here prescribed something off-label in the last mm, 24 hours? I mean, it's all the time. If you work in pediatrics, you do it all the time because the stuff just isn't tested on children. It's, when I worked in pediatrics, I think I probably wrote for an off-label drug every day. Not because it was my intention to do something the FDA would frown on, but because the studies just weren't done in kids. Uh, anybody here practice in Washington State? Yeah, big ugly fight there recently about off-label use of fillers. And again, it was kind of backing into the wrong decision that got folks where they didn't want to, want to be, not really thinking ahead and thinking clearly about the intended consequence, but rather backing into the unintended consequence. Outpatient surgery is a tough one. Where are those Floridians over there? There's a flirty in here? Okay. So you know that outpatient, it used to be anything done outside the hospital was pretty much unregulated until uh, liposuction. And, and that was what created regulation of outpatient surgery, really. Um, Floridian physician decided that it would be just fine to do liposuction in an office setting and do a whole lot of it, like on one patient, which, you know, is... Um, a mortal event in some cases, and patients died from having liposuction done unregulated in a physician office. So then it, people begin to think about what about regulating surgery in the outpatient setting? And then you have to define what surgery is. And in some places it's been defined as 
mechanical interruption of the human skin, which sounds a lot like a flu shot to me. So again, all those little definitions matter a bunch. And we're kind of hard at work making sure that the unintended consequences of doing things like regulating outpatient surgery don't limit what PAs need to do. So more additional issues of more of the who can do what. The perennial question, can PAs do that? Uh, can PAs ask a medical assistant to do that? Can PAs supervise a medical assistant or someone else? Who's going to do that? And then non-traditional settings, and they are everywhere, particularly for PAs who work in dermatology, right? I mean, there's a new place that you can go to have something done nearly all the time, and there's a lot of questioning about how that should be regulated. For PAs, what we say is it shouldn't be regulated any differently than any other setting. If the physician delegates it, and it's legal, and the PA is trained to do it, then it ought to be just fine. And there's no reason that should be different in, in any setting across the board. There's recently a big hoopla in Tennessee. Anybody here from Tennessee? About, yeah, about pain clinics. You probably remember this pestilence. Um, again, you know, should things be different? Should there be different supervision required in pain clinics? Why? I mean, supervision, supervision. The physician and the PA and the facility should make the determination about how that works. So that's where the academy sits in how we look at that. And we've had some pretty important um, victories. The legislation in Tennessee did not pass. Um, the regulations in Iowa exempted PAs. And I think we'll see more of this sort of unique carve out for looking at PAs as a, a uniquely regulated profession. Then there's the corporate practice of medicine. Those of you in Texas and in California deal with this. A long time ago, probably in the early 60s, Legislation was passed in many states which said that uh, corporations can't basically employ physicians, which of course is kind of crazy now, right, because almost everybody works for somebody. I mean, you work for Kaiser or another big group. Um, but the idea was that nobody wanted corporations telling physicians what to do. Nobody wanted the practice of medicine to be limited by a corporation whose goal was to return profit to um, shareholders. So there's some old laws left around the corporate practice of medicine that have some implication, particularly in dermatology, because of the practice outside of a traditional office setting. And then there's you know, the idea that skin is everywhere. If you're in cardiothoracic surgery, the idea that somebody's going to want to come in and you know, shove you aside in the OR and do what you're doing is pretty small. But in dermatology, you know, everybody's got skin. And every specialty, to some degree, deals with skin. So then you have some tension around, well, how should that work? You know, what is the practice of family medicine? And when should dermatology interact? And should PAs trained in dermatology work for physicians in family medicine? And, and where does that continuum logically, logically end? So because we're PAs, the thing we like best is the case studies, right? If one of these is about you, I'm sorry. It was interesting, so I put it up here. Um, the names have been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, the people caught in the crossfire, folks that had good ideas and then they went awry. So uh, I, I didn't intend it to be you if it turns out to be you, but um, here we go. And, and these should make you cringe. 
actually, because most of us have been in a situation where, you know, we stop at sort of the two-thirds way in and think, well, this could end badly. You know, maybe I should have uh, thought about that a little bit before I got to this, this decision point. I'm not talking about clinically badly. I'm talking about something where the law wasn't clear and we took one road and, and probably it would have been safer to take another or to stop and consult. This is really a nice case because it um, came out well and because it was really a, a study and working, working together organizationally. So well, there was a New Jersey dermatologist who decided that a competing practice, which did take Medicaid patients, by the way, um, needed to have only board-certified dermatologists supervising PAs. So the practice had dermatologists, but they also had some family medicine physicians, uh, OB-GYNs, I don't know, nothing, nothing really wildly out of bounds, but not necessarily just board-certified dermatologists. But it was a dermatology practice, and they had PAs in the practice. So the, supervisor, the physician got unhappy about that, and he decided that they should propose a regulation to say that in New Jersey, only physicians who are board-certified dermatologists can supervise PAs who work in dermatology. Well, that's a bad precedent to start just on a big level. Now you can say, you know, in terms of the world, most of the time, is that a good idea? Absolutely. But scope and specialty can be different. Now hang on to your hat just a minute. I mean, this is obscure, but just think about this for a second. Um, there are some pediatricians who do adolescent gynecology. If that's done in a pediatri pediatric office, is that gynecology or is that pediatrics? There are some general surgeons who work in rural areas that do a lot of primary care just because, you know, last guy's standing kind of thing. Is that general surgery or is that family medicine, primary care? So scope and specialty aren't necessarily exactly the same thing. And you'd hate to have a regulation in one state that said that it would. It's just a slippery slope. The other issue here is that this problem could have been solved just by enforcing existing law. New Jersey already had a law on the books that says that misrepresentation to patients is something the, me the medical board should come after you for, which is fine, right? If you say that you are, um, uh, I mean, choose a specialty, that you're an orthopedist, but that you can, uh, are a specialist in melanoma, and everybody with melanoma should come to your door, you know, patients should be protected from that. That should be something that the physician can be disciplined for. And in New Jersey, they didn't need a new regulation. All they needed to do was enforce existing law. So the SDPA and the AAPA and the New Jersey State Society of PAs all got together and actually went and, and um, talked with the dermatologist who was worried. We talked with our colleagues at the AAD and the ASDS about this particular case. They didn't support this. They didn't think there needed to be new regulations about this particular issue. Um, we talked to the New Jersey Medical Board and worked through its PA committee. And in the end, the, um, the Medical Board determined that there was no need for additional regulations on this particular issue, that enforcing existing law was the thing to do, that they thought there probably was some misrepresentation. And the physician who had the practice with a lot of non-dermatologists should get a letter of concern from the Medical Board saying, Let's tell the truth, buddy. Your patients need to know who's there taking care of their patients. 
They probably didn't say it. Let's tell the truth, Betty. That was probably a little bit different coming from the medical board. This could be you too, right? So um, there's a PA working in a medical spa setting. It was seen as a competition by another dermatologist. And the other dermatologist decided that she just didn't like that guy and didn't like what he was doing and thought it was not legal and probably unsupervised and shouldn't be happening. So she reported him to the medical board. The medical board had a brand new attorney that had come from another part of the um, Consumer Affairs Bureau. And the new attorney read the PA Practice Act and said, oh yeah, I see right here, there's no comma. That means that the physician does have to be on site with the PA. And every PA in the state of Connecticut had to have on-site supervision for the next year until that was, until the regulation was clarified. And the PA was sanctioned by the board for practicing with inappropriate supervision. I don't know if there's a teaching point in this case. I think there probably is. Um, I think there are probably a couple. One is that if there's something kind of not quite right in your state law, you can't rely on benevolent interpretation forever. So if there's a wart in there that everybody's kind of ignoring or thinking, oh yeah, you know, we don't really pay attention to that part, you should fix it. Um, because we're not under the radar anymore. And people can show up and say, oh, you know, I'm a strict constructionist and I'm gonna enforce this law the way it's written because I'm gonna run for AG in 10 years and I'm just gonna make sure I've got my little path paved as I go down here. So don't rely on benevolent interpret interpreters. They don't stay around. You may have somebody that shows up tomorrow that says, oh yeah, this little wart on your PA law, well, we're gonna make that uh, the law of the land starting right now on my shift. So change those things that are open to interpretation. The other, and, and you know, you're probably not gonna like this, and when I said controversial, I kinda meant it, but, and again, we'll fight club when I'm done talking, but the, the cutting edge is not for us. And by, what I mean by that is if you're a PA, you're gonna take twice the scrutiny for what you do, and that's just fine. I mean, if there's, you shouldn't be doing anything that can't stand scrutiny basically, right? So if you think, well, you know, people don't usually do this, but it's brand new and I'm gonna try it, let's leave that for the physicians because we will take twice the hard looks about that. If the, the, this had been a dermatologist, you know, looking at another dermatologist, it would have been different. But the actions of one PA had horrible consequences for the every PA in Connecticut and the patients they took care of for a year until this was, um, was taken care of, was fixed up. And the PA ended up getting sanctioned by the medical board as well. So, you know, if it looks like it's something brand new, not quite legal, probably not your best decision to go for that one. Uh, we get this all the time. This, this really happened. Uh, well, I'll tell you another time it happened, is that there was a new staff person hired at the medical board in Maryland, and a practice manager wanted to know if PAs could do telephone triage. So the practice manager called the medical board. Well, of course, we should just call the medical board and ask if PAs can do telephone triage. They got a brand new licensing tech at the medical board who'd been there for not very long, and the licensing tech said, well, let me just look, I'll look. And so looks down the list of things PAs can do, you know, um, uh, put in chest tubes, uh, central lines, Look, 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 nope, doesn't say telephone triage. So the person said no. 
No telephone triage for PAs in Maryland. Well, you know, that, that's a problem. Uh, so the, the idea here is that you want to be careful how you ask the question and who you ask it of, because you'll have to live with the answer. Um, so what happened with this one is the um, practice manager wanted to bill for PAs doing dermal fillers. So they called the medical board and said, uh, can PAs do dermal fillers? And the answer was, no, uh, it's not on the list. So PAs can't do that. A better approach to that is to call your state PA association or to talk to the academy staff and say, you know, what do you know about this particular issue in our state? Because lots of times it depends on how you ask the question. Or being a medical person, you know that telephone triage is really the same as evaluate patient problems and make determinations about diagnoses. You're just doing it on the phone, right? So you don't want to get in the position of asking the wrong person uh, for the information, because the likelihood that you'll get an answer that you don't really want to live with are, are pretty good. Several states have made very um, enlightened decisions about scope. Actually, in Wyoming, the anybody here from Wyoming? I didn't think so. Um, there's not very many PAs there to start with, and I don't think they get to leave very often. Um, in Wyoming, the regulations for PAs say, and this is pretty close to verbatim, that the medical board does not determine scope of practice for physician assistance. Rather, this is entirely left to the supervising physician and any applicable facility policy. In um, California, pretty much the same thing. New York has never cared about scope of practice for PAs. They've always seen that as being physicians and PAs both licensed to practice medicine and PAs practicing with physician supervision and able to do those things that are delegated. And there's never been a, a list in New York, and I don't think there ever will be one. It's just antithetical to the way PAs are, are utilized. So in this case, once the medical board staff member had looked at the list and said no, it was very hard to turn that clock back. It took a long time uh, to get it done, and I think we're probably still working on that one. So here's a short string of pearls, and everybody has them. Uh, from doing this every day for longer than I want to think about, these are things that I've seen that have caused PAs to get in trouble that really could have been avoided if they'd sort of thought ahead a little bit. These are going to look familiar to you, and you may actually see yourself in one of these. I hope you don't, uh, but you, you might have been there. And, and maybe this can kind of help guide you to stay away um, in the future. The first one is that if it smells like fire, you should run for the exit. Every now and then I get a call from a PA who says, you know, I got a job at this practice, and patients are coming in, and the medical assistant is just handing them a prescription for, you know, I don't care what. Um, that's not standard of care. So if you see something that's a little odd, the odds are pretty good that there's going to be more stuff there that are odd, too. We've had PAs who got convicted for um, Medicare fraud, not because the PA was necessarily committing Medicare fraud, but because the practice was doing something that was patently illegal, and the PA wasn't playing, paying enough attention. You, know, you can say, I'm just going to keep my head down and see patients, and you know, that's kind of nice, but your responsibility goes beyond that. And certainly, your uh, ability to stay licensed uh, is important. You know, a job is a job. 
but a license is a license. And if you have an actionable action against your license, the odds that you're going to get another job are pretty small. So doing, making sure that everything that's happening in the practice looks and smells good to you all the time is, is important. Uh, the second is pretty obvious. Play by the rules all the time, all the rules. If you're not quite sure what the rules are, call and ask. And the Academy is a good source. I'm sure SDPA is a great source of um, authoritative information on what the rules are on that particular issue, uh, that, which goes to the next one. If you have a question, ask the right person. You want to ask somebody that will understand the question to start with, right? Somebody that's going to know um, what off-label drug means, what that means actually in clinical practice. Somebody that understands perhaps some of the nuance of the medical board. Someone that may know what's changing. In Arizona, come um, January 1st, if I don't hear people doing the happy dance, that's going to be a problem because the law there is, is about to get just phenomenally better. It was already pretty good, but it's going to go from good to just you know, really close to nirvana on the 1st of, of January. So you, know, you may call and say, I have to get these charts co-signed, and we'll be able to say, yeah, but only for about six more weeks. So um, call and ask because you may be, there may be a law that's about to be changed, or maybe you're the key person to help us change a law. There are some PAs who do things that are um, you know, truly niche market kind of stuff. I mean, this is a PA who's uh, a noted specialist in um, pacemaker infections. So we may know somebody who knows somebody that can give us an answer that will be useful. Uh, for example, there's a lot of questions now about uh, radiation. We know, we know a lot of PAs who are formal, former rad techs. We know um, a lot of PAs at MD Anderson that work in radiation oncology. So we may be, able to be, be, may be able to put you in touch with a network that can help answer the question. I want to go back to lasers for, for a moment. Anybody know why lasers became a hot topic? Anybody want to? Venture a guess? What was that? No, it was eyes. It was optometrists wanting to do LASIK. So that's where, you know, it kind of first rose, it just kind of, you know, came to the surface of something people were going to care about. And from there came things like laser hair removal and, uh, you know, the other thing that you people in, in dermatology work with all the time. But it started out as a, as a debate between optometrists and ophthalmologists about LASIK um, way back, you know, a long, a long time ago. So, uh, you know, a lot of the laser things are kind of settling down some. But now we're working pretty hard on ionizing radiation, and this may or may not make any difference to a lot of you, but there's been a lot of question about whether or not PAs can use fluoroscopy for visualization during things like putting in uh, central lines and doing chest tubes, LPs, a lot of things. I mean, if you can see versus not see, most of us would rather see, right, what we're doing. And if you're having it done to you, you would probably prefer that the person that's doing it can see versus not see when they're doing it to you. So a lot of questions about whether or not PAs can use fluoroscopy. So it, it took us about four years. We started off talking with the radiologists, and they said, you know, we're not quite sure. We think if the radiologist supervised it, it's probably all right. But most of us didn't get a lot of training in radiation safety in our PA program. And we have a healthy respect from prereqs and from, you know, working around folks in, in uh, the radiology departments. But we don't have a lot of specific training in PA programs. It's just not included. 
So then we went and talked to the um, SIR, Society of Interventional Radiologists, to say, what do you think about PAs and being able to use fluoro? And they said, well, we think it's a good idea. There should be some specific training. PAs ought to be able to do that. But you need to solve the issue with the rad techs. We said, fine. So we went and talked with the ASRT, the Rad Tech Association, and said, what about PAs who need to use fluoro? And they said, OK, we're OK with anybody doing what they need to do as long as they're trained. So we came up with a joint curriculum between ASRT and the AAPA about what PAs should need, what training PAs should have in order to use fluoro. And it's going to be sort of like an ACLS course, you know, where you can take it if you need it and then become certified for using fluoroscopy if you're delegated and supervised and all the other things in the law apply. So there's ways to create solutions as technology comes up and changes. So if there's a law that doesn't make sense, work with your state chapter to change it. Laws are getting better for PAs, and that's happening because people with unique issues are able to say, this is a problem in our practice. You always want to start that discussion with, here's what it means for patient care. Sometimes we have PAs that will call and say, you know, I've got a right to do this. And I say, you know, time out. The practice of medicine is a privilege, and you are privileged to be able to practice as a PA. If there's an obstacle, let's fix it. But, but it's not your right. Let's, let's deal with it from the idea that this is what it's going to mean to patients. If you start there, you can find a solution pretty readily. If you start with it's all about you, it takes a little longer. Or maybe you shouldn't do it. So the idea that um, you know, the new stuff isn't necessarily for PAs, if you're on the very cutting edge, I mean, you may work for a subspecialist physician who does some stuff that's very uh, unique and new. And that's fine if you're working in that continuum. But you don't want to be out there you know, way off by yourself doing the stuff that was invented Tuesday. right? You've got to wait till the dust settles on some of that. Stay so clean that you squeak. And don't let anybody's vanity or greed cloud your judgment. And this is a tough one, I think, probably particularly in dermatology, where people will ask for things that they may or may not need, where it's easy to say yes, when maybe you should be saying, not today, let's have somebody else look. This is um, a job for the dermatologist to decide. So just don't let yourself find, don't find yourself on a slippery slope that you don't ultimately want to be going down. And unleash your inner advocate. People will say, PAs will say to me, oh, I can't possibly talk to that legislator. I'll think, wait a minute. You know, in the last 30 days, did you tell somebody that they had an incurable illness? In the last 30 days, did you tell someone they had an STD? In the last 30 days, did you tell someone that their little tiny baby had to have major surgery? I mean, PAs do the world's hardest communication all the time as a matter of course. So don't tell me you can't talk to a legislator. I'm not going to believe you. Of course you can. Of course you can. If you can tell somebody that they have melanoma, you can tell a legislator that the law needs to change. I'm sorry. You just have that skill set. I'm not going to believe that you can't do it. So it's just a matter of taking that skill set and translating it into the policy arena, which all of you can do. Legislators are just people. They put on their pantyhose one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. And it's just a matter of finding the way to um, decide first that that's part of your business. And I'm going to tell you that it is. That if you practice as a physician assistant, sometimes the best things you can do for patients are to advocate for a change in the law. You know, I told you that in my county, there's not one dermatologist that will take a child who's covered by Medicaid. So I should probably be at the Capitol talking about the Medicaid budget. 
we should probably be doing those things that we can that advocate for our patients outside the exam room. And all of you have the skills to do that. I know that one of your meetings coming up is going to be in Washington, D.C. And I'm hoping we can set up a situation where those of you who are PAs in dermatology can come to the Capitol and uh, advocate with legislators. We're talking with your leaders about that now, about setting up something so that you can come down and see members of Congress, one of whom is Karen Bass. The first PA was elected to Congress in November. She is from uh, California. She will do us proud. I don't know if you've met her, but if you were going to choose somebody to be the first PA in Congress, you would choose Karen Bass. She's a, a wonderful person and will put a, a great face on our profession in Congress. So if you find a law that doesn't really work for the way you need to take care of patients, work with your state chapter. And I would say this because SDP is a great national organization, as is AAPA, but when we need to change a state law, we're working with our state chapters to do it. We want to have a coordinated effort. The, the one way that you can assure that you won't succeed is to look like you're divided in, within your own ranks, right? I mean, if you go to talk to a legislator and they say, well, wait a minute, 20 minutes ago there was another PA in here telling me just the opposite. The odds that you'll be successful are pretty small. So find out what it is you need to do. Work with your state chapter or with the AAPA to do it. And then decide that that's something that's in your skill set because it really is. We've got lots of folks to help you. I'm the... Um, the senior director, which means the buck stops here for state law. And of course, I've got a boss, that's Jim Potter. And then I handle the Western region, which includes Ameri anybody here from American Samoa? American Samoa does license PAs, in case you're wondering. Uh, the only US territory that does not is Puerto Rico. And we're working on wanting to change that, um, change that one, too. And then there's three other people, one of whom's an attorney, Stephanie Radix. And all four of us come to work fully caffeinated at least five days a week to um, help PAs and help PAs to make laws that help them take care of patients. So that is the end of what I came to say, and now I'm hoping that you have um, questions, suggestions, things you're worried about, a particular state issue. Oh, good. Comments. Um, I am in California now. I left Oregon because of the black box. So Oregon is one of those states that has um, a list of what we can and cannot do, including things I did as a medical assistant. It's embarrassing. Um, when I decided to look for a new job, I purposely left Oregon because of the restrictions. It is not hard to work in a state towards making changes, and I've done that with the um, OSPA. Um, I am on the legislative uh, committee for the SDPA, and we have um, a few members. We want to get somebody from every state. Talking to your legislatures, like you said, is really easy. They're human beings. I've done it on other levels besides the um, PA level. And we need you. And so um, Susan Hammerling is our Legislative Affairs Committee Chair, and she's at the airport. So um, I just want to make a plea to all of you. We need somebody from every state to help with us. That's great. You know, the world is run by those who show up. There's no doubt about it. And if you can have the folks that have the information connected with SDPA and the state chapter, that's great. The good news about Oregon is that uh, we've written a bill. Um, 
I'll tell you something about writing bills. Sometimes I'll be reading legislation, I'll think, oh, I hate that. And then I realize, oh, I wrote that. But it was 30 years ago. Uh, but the Oregon law, I didn't write that one. I, I swear to you, I did not. I'm not responsible. But the medical board exec, Kathleen Haley, called me last week to ask me about something. So there will be legislation introduced in 2011 in January to improve the Oregon law. Whether or not it passes depends on a lot of things. The new Oregon governor is a physician, Dr. Kitzhopper, which actually bodes well. Uh, yes, I'm someone who practices in Kentucky. Um, Kentucky. I'm sorry, my condolences. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> it is better for me now because I've, I've recently, I've only been in dermatology for a year, but prior to that I was in emergency medicine, urgent treatment, and family practice, all of which are limited to an extent that it's almost crippling at times. Um, someone would come into my urgent treatment center with a broken arm and I couldn't give them anything for their pain because we're not allowed to write any scheduled medications. Uh, Off-site supervision is, is ridiculous, no and so is uh, prescriptive, I mean, uh, uh, co-signatures on all our charts. I mean, we have the, the list there, we have it all. <laughs> all of those are an issue for us. So we have, uh, we are governed under the Kentucky Medical Board of Licensure, and unfortunately for our state, um, the physician who is the president of the Kentucky Medical Association does not care at all for physician assistants, well, or nurse practitioners, actually. I think he actually, um, the last legislative session, we had a bill introduced to try to move us out of the red. Uh, and the KMA sent out um, uh, emails to all of their constituents asking them to call their legislators to oppose our legislation. Now, my physicians have employed a PA for the last nine years. Um, I'm the second PA in that practice. I've been um, in the state practicing as a PA for 13 years. If I talked to my physicians, they had really no idea of exactly the scope of limitations. So I encourage you all while getting involved is very important, I've always been involved. I was involved as a student at the University of Kentucky, which statistically, I think it's at 80% of the people that are being educated at the University of Kentucky are leaving the state to find employment. Uh, and that's a huge issue, of course. Um, but your physicians need to be educated. I found last year that my physicians had really no clue because in dermatology, it really isn't as big an issue. Um, as it is in family practice. My husband's a family practice PA. Um, he's miserable. He wants to move, but I have too good a job, so I'm not leaving. Um, but, uh, but educate your physicians. Um, and please, if it's not so much for you, it can, it, it can end up, it only takes um, one bad piece of legislation to limit everyone, as some of these cases have shown. So I encourage you to educate not only other PAs um, that may be locally around you, but also your physicians, because getting them involved can drastically change the environment in your, in your state. That's a very good point. And actually, if there was one predictor for whether or not PA legislation will pass, if I want to know what the one predictor for if the PA bill will pass is, it's what the Medical Society thinks every time. Uh, and so creating a sustained, positive relation with the state, relationship with the State Medical Society is always worth it. And there are some states where the Medical Society would not ever think about saying something negative about PA. Certainly Arizona's like that, California most of the time. Um, 
but in, in Kentucky, it just has never worked or hasn't worked so far. We actually wrote a book. I don't have a picture of it, but uh, it's a book called Team Building. It's on the website. Good luck there. It's getting better. But it's on the website, and it's, it, the book is about building relationships with other state organizations. Because if you go to a state legislator and you say, we've got this great legislation that's going to be important for patient care in your state to people that, that are in your district, and the legislator says, well, who supports that bill? You can say, well, the PA Society and the Derm Society of, this, of the, our state and the Medical Society and uh, the ambulance drivers and the Women in Farm Economics and the Farm Bureau and the Hospital Association and the ER physicians. And who, and who opposes that? Nobody. It's very easy for a legislator to vote yes on that. And actually, you know, just sort of in, in human nature in general, if you're trying to change something, you want to make it easy for people to do the right thing, right? I mean, that's why we come up with once-a-day medications. That's why we have Depo-Provera. You know, that's why we have a lot of things, because we want to make it easy for people to do the right thing. And same thing with legislation. You want to have the, the kind of support, the kind of relationship, the kind of consensus building, the kind of um, willingness to talk and talk and talk until you get to something that everybody can agree upon, that it, you make it easy for legislators to do the right thing. Yeah. And thank you for being here today. I have a question about how to best represent ourselves. I know you talked with licensure, registered, certified. On a lot of practice websites, they will list their physician assistant as being board certified. I think that that misrepresents us and want to make sure that we are above board and our patients understand exactly how we are certified. How would you recommend we do that? I can't say board certified. Um. Certified by <laughs> NCCPA. Say again? Certified by NCCPA. Yes, absolutely, that you're a certified PA, if indeed you are. Okay. Um, I'm proud to say I passed for the sixth time last year. Uh, thank you, thank you. That's an easy. Uh, yes, that you're a certified PA, but it, when you say board certified, and this is one of those things, I'm glad you bring this up, because this is one of the stay so clean you squeak kind of things. It's nuance. You know, it would be kind of easy to say you're board certified, because clearly the NCCPA does certify PA. But when folks say board certified, they're talking about ABMS. That's what really folks mean when they say board certified as an ABMS, American Board of Medical Specialties certification. So although PAs are certified, it's not an ABMS analog. So I believe if you want to be just so cautious, which I always advise, as in always advise, I would say certified by the NCCPA or our practice employees certified PAs. You know, put a link in. Everything's done electronically now so people can go right to what the NCCPA means. But yes, I think that's an important distinction to make. There was actually a PA who got in trouble in Montana for putting down that he was board certified in primary care. Uh, even though he, I mean, he was a certified PA, it was not his intention to misrepresent. But you know, we're not board certified in primary care. We're certified by the NCCPA as PAs. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? Well, here comes Abby, good, all right. I heard a, a great quote that I've been thinking in the back of my head. Not every PA is meant to take care of a patient at their bedside. And you have literally taken care of millions of patients by helping ensure access to the PA physician team. And I just am so proud to call you a colleague. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, it seems to me I should stop there. <laughs> if there are other questions, and I, I really mean cheers, jeers, take all comers. I'm going to be around, including through lunch, so happy to talk to um, any of you if you have questions or specific uh, things you want to bring up. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you.